We're continuing our study in, in 1 Corinthians, and today we're going to look at the cross and the central thrust of Paul's ministry to this powerful, influential city of Corinth, and Paul comes preaching the message of the cross, picking up in 1 Corinthians at 1 verse 17 to the end of the chapter. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, <clears throat> to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask that <clears throat> this passage would adequately humble each of us, that we would be so humble to see the glory and beauty of Christ, and that your wisdom is what's important, not ours. Your power and not ours. To you alone, we say, will you get the glory. We pray that you'd bring it out of our hearts and that it would bear good fruit in our lives as we would live in light of the cross and have cruciform lives. We ask for this message to go down deep, even deeper still. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may recall the, the humorous movie, What About Bob, with uh, Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus. And at the beginning, he comes in for counseling to Richard Dreyfus, and he tells him, that there are two types of people in this world, those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't. And if you remember, Richard Dreyfus is pretty taken back by that because Bob Wiley has a lot bigger problems than Neil Diamond. And uh, he's blowing off some pretty big stuff, and so it's funny. Well, we like when, when people do those kind of humorous things. That's not what Paul is doing here. There isn't anything funny when the Apostle Paul says there's two kinds of people in this world. Did you catch that? 
in verse 18. He says in verse 18, there are two types of people in this world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is getting at there are two kinds of people, there are two kinds of problems, and two kinds of speaking in this text. There are two kinds of people, verse 18, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The world will try to divide into all these different categories, and it's not whether you like Neil Diamond or not. But the world will divide up these different categories by class distinctions, race distinctions, gender distinctions, but the gospel intrudes all of that and says there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, you're all one in Christ Jesus. So the cross unites us together in Christ. But yet there are two types of people here. What Paul is saying is how you respond to God's cross determines your eternal destiny. You're either perishing this very moment or being saved. C.S. Lewis described it as heading towards immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Where are you this morning? The Apostle Paul says this a few times in his gospel writings. In 2 Corinthians, he says something very similar. He says, we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Same two categories. To the one, the fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? My hope and prayer is that it's bringing life to you this morning. Second Thessalonians, the same thing. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see, that's the whole point of the Bible, is that Adam fell into sin, and we fell along with him into sin, and so has the rest of mankind. And we are all under his wrath and his curse, and we are either currently perishing or being saved. When the Titanic hit the iceberg, it was slowly sinking. And there were two kinds of people that were on the Titanic. Those who got on a life raft and those who did not. If you got on a boat, you lived. If you did not, you're done. That was it. And so the cross is deemed as folly, as foolishness. But we are lost without it. The Bible says if righteousness could be had any other way, then Christ Jesus died in vain. It was of no purpose. He did not need to come down if we could have gone up, but we could not go up, and we would have all gone down. And so Jesus came down for us. You can't say, well, I like Jesus' teaching. I like the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't like the cross. Many have said that. If you don't love the cross, you don't love God. 
For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice what Paul says here in this gospel. And you wonder, why is preaching important in the church? Well, notice what Paul, the, the, the terms that Paul uses. Verse 17 he refers to the term of, he, didn't, he wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so Paul came into Corinth, he's preaching. And in verse 23, we're told what he was preaching. He said he made it his aim to preach Christ crucified. And we preach to save those who believe, verse 21. You see, and all this is described in verse 18 as the word of the cross. It's not an eloquent wisdom. This is not a TED Talk this morning. You know, it's interesting. I looked up TED Talks this week just to see if there was any type of Jesus TED Talk because I was going to tell you that there wasn't, but there was. And it was Billy Graham came in 1998 and did a TED Talk, and I listened to it. You should listen to that message. Powerful. Preach the gospel. Way to go, Billy. I mean, it's powerful. But this is not a TED Talk. It's not a pep talk. This isn't one of these college graduation speeches full of platitudes and smooth-sounding words, and you go home and you feel good, and you're not, not really sure why. That, that's not the cross. The cross was the scum of the earth. You didn't talk about this in polite and sophisticated company. No decent criminal got the cross. No Roman citizen got the cross. It was for the lowlifes. It was for the worst people. When Jesus went to a cross, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You don't get any lower than that. That's as low as you go. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are two types of people. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And Jesus came and perished for us and took our place so that we would be saved. Do you know him? You see, there are two kinds of problems. As Paul's bringing this message into Corinth, he says there's a problem. The Jews are demanding signs and the Greeks are seeking wisdom. And as we might say in the old country song, they were looking for love in all the wrong places. And as a result, he says the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and it's a folly to Greeks. The Jews were demanding a sign. And Jesus said the only sign he was going to give them was the sign of Jonah. He said an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea, so shall the son of, actually it says belly of the sea monster, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah was that Jesus would die and then be raised. But we have a similar problem today, just as in Paul's day, where we want to put God to the test. You talk to people, and they, they often will, will say, well, 
I'm waiting for God to reveal himself to me. Like he's going to like, you know, drop down a note on your windshield, you know, and, and, you know, make it clear to you, you know, this is what you should do, you know. And we say, God, God, give me, give me a sign. There's a writer in Nashville by the name of Andy Gullihorn, and he has a song called Burning Bushes. And this is what he says in the song. I've never seen a dead man come to life or seen a blind man get his sight. I've never seen water turn to wine. It isn't that I don't believe, but it would be easier for me if you would just send down a sign. I remember the childlike innocence, a faith with no coincidence. The world around was living proof. Has the world just disappeared, or is it me that isn't clear how to recognize it's you? I'm praying for a miracle to let me know you're listening. I'm waiting for a lightning bolt to strike. I'm walking through a garden of a thousand burning bushes, looking up to heaven for a sign. Walking through a garden of a thousand burning bushes. Look around. You don't need a sign. It's in every tulip, every flower, everywhere. The glory of God is preaching, declares the wisdom of God. Jews seek signs. Are you waiting for some sign? The sign was the sign of Jonah. As Jesus would, be die, would die for us and on the third day be raised again. The other problem was human wisdom. Greeks sought wisdom. And today our culture has a high value on intelligence, thoughtfulness, articulation, beauty, grades, degrees, promotions, awards. We all want to talk about, you know, put the bumper sticker on our child. You know, my child is, a, is an honor student, you know. Or, or have you ever seen the one that says, you know, my child beat up your honor student, you know. If it, you know. Like everybody's got to, you know, find something that they're, you know, that they're proud about. And basically we all want to say that my child has made it or that we have made it. And if you get into like an Ivy League school and you've gone to Yale or Harvard or you graduate from some impressive school or you get the top secret clearance and you live in the right zip code, I mean, it just sounds a lot more impressive to say you're from Potomac or Bethesda than to say Lost Knife or Cinnamon Woods because we have haves and have nots. And we like to hold up the impressive places, the impressive resumes, the nice houses, the exquisite remodeled kitchens and bathrooms and and on and on. Before I came to this church, I shared at Ben's ordination, another church where the guy said, I like the boy. Well, this, this was not that church. It was another church I interviewed in Chicago. And one of the elders, who was a big golfer, and he was sizing me up with worldly wisdom. And he wanted to know, he had a really profound question for me. What kind of car do you drive? And he was serious, you know, because he was wanting to know, basically, was I going to embarrass him? Because he, was, he had a lot of money, and he was, played golf, and he wanted to know if I played golf, and he wanted to know what kind of car I drive. And so I played along. I said, a 1991 Nissan Sentra. <laughs> Mary drove that car for a while. <laughs> that was some car, huh? He wasn't real impressed. And he, I could tell he was really like, is he serious? Well, what is it about our culture that just always gets at this idea of human wisdom? And we elevate ourselves and we pass right by people that are, have real needs. You know, my dad 
I shared the story recently about my dad being on the roof at Kensington Middle School and they got paddled. It was my dad and his two best friends. Well, the one friend has died and my dad's other good friend lives near him and never talks to my dad anymore because my dad has ALS and is in a wheelchair. And here these guys grew up together, but he can't deal with the fact that my dad's dying. And because he's no longer going up and now he's going down, he just wrote him off. That's what the world does. You just dis discard it. If you're no longer on the fast track, as long as you're on the up, you're good. What happens when you're not? You see, can't you see Jesus just turns everything upside down? Jesus wasn't going up, folks. He came down. He came down. Love went down. It couldn't have gone any further down than a cross. You see, human wisdom makes a God in his own image. The reason God had to come to a cross is because the God of the Bible is holy. The only attribute of God that gets the threefold ascription, the Bible never even gives a twofold to any other attribute of God. At least I can't find it. If you can find one, come tell me. You don't see love, love, or mercy, mercy, or sovereign, sovereign, but you get holy, holy, holy in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when Isaiah comes into the presence of God, he says, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And why is he covering his feet? Same reason he's covering his eyes, because he's so holy. And they call to one another, back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. And then in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, John the Apostle has a vision of heaven. He sees the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when, so when people tell you, well, well what, when I think of God, I like to think of, and they come up with something that's not from the Bible, you know you're getting idolatry. You know you're getting human wisdom. You know you need to chuck it in the circular file. Because people will come up with the fanciest stuff ever. But when you come to God, the first and foremost thing you come to realize is that he's holy and that I am not. And therefore, we've got a big problem. Carnegie Simpson said, wisdom is to man, or I'm sorry, forgiveness is to man the plainest of duties, but to God it is the profoundest of problems. What is God going to do? God is so holy, and man is so sinful that God looks down in the Laodicean church and says, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. This lukewarm church, it's disgusting. He can't tolerate it. He's a holy God. What does he do? He's got this huge problem. He loves his people, and yet they're incredibly filthy. 
And if there is no holy God, then you don't have no cross to worry about or no need for a cross. But if he is holy, we need a cross. You see, wise people solve problems. Don't we just love when there's somebody super smart and you're like, just come up with ideas. The cross is the wisdom of God because it's the profoundest idea. The wise, it shames the wisdom of this world. It's the exact opposite of how the world solves its problems through strength and through might and by going up and by conquering. Jesus gets conquered. He gets skewered on a cross. He is mocked and cursed and laughed at and spit on and beaten. Does that sound like the wisdom of God to you? It is. It's not human wisdom. Think about this. Jesus, at the end of his life, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound like human wisdom? To elevate your leader and at the end of his life, have him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, even when liberals look at God's word and they try to pick apart which is from God and which isn't, they get to a passage like that and they say, hmm, you wouldn't leave that in. Like that that must have really happened because who would put that in there? Would we say that about the end of Gandhi's life or Muhammad or Confucius or any other great leader in history that at the end of his life he's coming undone and he says to his God, why have you forsaken me? Who in the world says that? That's not human wisdom unless it really happened. It did happen. It happened because Jesus becomes sin on the cross. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness for by his wounds we become healed. That's not human wisdom. That's God's wisdom to heal corrupt human hearts and to forgive their sins. And the only way God could deal with this corruption of our hearts was to take the corruption upon himself. All of our sins, past, present, and future, had to fall upon him. It was the only way that he could bring together a people that wouldn't boast in anything they had done, that would humble every one of us We're all on an equal footing before the cross. It doesn't matter about your income. It doesn't matter about the title in in front of your office. It doesn't matter about how many bars are on your your jacket, on your uniform. It doesn't matter your ethnicity or your age or your rank. All of that is all laid bare. It's the cross. Paul says, I'm only going to preach the Christ crucified. He didn't even get to the resurrection until chapter 15. He has to humble a proud church. This proud church thinks that somehow, oh, oh, Apollos, oh, he's a, he's a 10. He's a 10 preacher. I mean, he's a 10. I mean, Cephas, ah, he's, he's eight and a half. He's a nine. Paul, eh, he's kind of boring. You know, he's not real eloquent. He's probably a six. You know, he's, he's nothing special. You know, here they are ranking these different preachers and they're all into eloquence and how smooth you are and all that kind of stuff. And Paul just, I just came preaching Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Because this proud church is coming apart at the rails. Some of them think they're better than one another. 
And Paul has to say, what do you have that you haven't first received? Any of your gifts, that's all a, it's a gift. You didn't do anything to attain it. The cross humbles us all because the cross shows us some profound things, doesn't it? On the one hand, it shows us what God had to do because of our sin. It's that bad. Is our, is our sin that bad that, that, that Jesus had to, to die on a cross for us? Yes. It shows us how nasty and filthy sin is before God. But it also shows us how great God's love is. That God loved his people so much he would not let them perish. But no, in his wisdom of coming up with a solution that he would send his own son and his son would be the scapegoat. His son would be the lamb. Three times we're told there in Revelation, he was slain. That means that's just a nice word for slaughtered. How would you like that if we read that in Revelation 5 this morning? Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive honor and glory and wisdom and might and blessing forever and ever and ever because he was slaughtered. He was. Bono from U2 said this, I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my religiosity. I love the idea of the sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, look, there are certain results to the way we are, to selfishness and there's, and there's mortality as part of your very sinful nature and let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences to actions. Amen. So there's two kinds of people, there's two kinds of problems, and there's two kinds of speaking. It's two kinds of boasting. What do you boast in? You know, boasting is basically where we get our identity. What do we find our value in? You know, we might boast in the in the hobbies that we do and how well we perform and how we boast in our accomplishments we boast in our children we boast in the cars we drive we we boast in our sports teams but there's not much to boast about in dc but you know we we always trying to we're always trying to boast in something and jesus comes and he goes to a cross listen to what this rabbi who refuted Justin Martyr, who was talking about the cross, this is in the early church, and this rabbi responded and said, Sir, these and such like passages of Scripture compel us to wait one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as son of man. But this, your so-called Christ, is without honor and glory so that he has fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified." is despicable. I'm waiting for Daniel 7, Jesus. Wait, he should have just read two more chapters over. In Daniel 9, it says that the anointed one will be cut off. He says the cross is an affront to man who wants to be mighty and strong. John Stott, in your bulletin, at the reflection quote, he said this about the cross. He said the concept of substitution may be said to lie at both the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. 
while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. Man, God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone and God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Think about that. The concept of substitution. And this is something that we receive, not achieve. And this smacks against the human wisdom of our culture. Mary Bell wrote this article that gets quoted a lot. And she's a consultant to high-level executives. And she says this, achievement is the alcohol of our time. She says, the more you achieve, the more you feel like dynamite. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. When they complete a project, you feel dynamite. And when you start something new and you're able to show your visionary entrepreneur skills and you can be somebody who can start something from nothing, something that is so highly praised in our culture, that's a feeling of euphoria. And of course, your self-esteem, the way you evaluate and form your identity is on the line here. Remember, We're so concerned about protecting our status and the reason why we're engaged in status anxiety is for this very reason that somebody actually might find out that I might perhaps be a fraud. So our self-esteem is on the line because you've been been gathering our self-worth externally, living out your life dependent on the judgments of the people outside of you. She said an achievement addict is no different than any other type of addict. We are achievement addicts. And Jesus comes along and brings a Copernican revolution. The revolution to this status anxiety and achievement being the alcohol of, of, of Gaithersburg and Maryland and, and Washingtonians. It's about receiving, not achieving. It's not human wisdom. This is God wisdom. You build your identity and you put Jesus as the center of your universe and let everything revolve around that instead of building your your status, your identity on what you accomplish and and this achievement of what you have to do next and got to get done today. Can you rest this afternoon? Can you leave your work aside? Can you find rest in Jesus? Do you repentance and rest? You will be saved. Can you just let it go this afternoon? Are you already thinking about, I can't wait to get going on on tomorrow? That's how our culture is. My wife was telling me about a young girl in the Kentlands, and her mother was yelling at her, run, run. And the poor girl is in leotards, and she's got a violin in her hand. And and the parent is yelling, run, run, because she's got to get from her her practice where she's doing her dancing and now she's got to get to her violin lesson welcome to the Kentlands welcome to our community run this is about rest not run it's just the opposite it's so that your boast would be in the Lord you put your boast there not in your identity and in your achievements and all that you can do to impress everybody about how special and how great you are god showed you how special you are by dying for you he accomplished everything for you and now he calls you to go down to follow him into this cruciform life it turns the world right side up and now it's telling us to go and serve others and to die to ourselves. 
It's telling achievement parents to get on the floor and play with their children. And it, it's a call to mothers that, that now I got a sick child and I'm not going to be able to do what I wanted to do today. Well, that's what we've been called to do. We're constantly have to, to die in this cruciform life. There are needs all around us. And the Copernican revolution of being a follower of Christ is to look at the world totally different. It's to slow down. It's to stop and help. Because now we're boasting in something else. It's not about how much we can get done, who we can impress with our life. We're wrapped up in this Christ. Let me end with an illustration. What are you boasting in today? Paul says that this cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We have a hard time with that, being saved. I mean, because evangelical circles, all we say is we were saved. You always use saved in past tense. I got saved when I was, you know, such and such age. When, when were you saved? And Paul says, wait a minute, what do you mean you're being saved? How do we do that? I mean, we don't, we don't do this, right? And yet the Bible speaks in terms of getting saved, being saved, and will be saved. And so the idea is that salvation is God saves us at the cross, but then the Holy Spirit applies the, the work of Christ to us. And then we're in the process of being sanctified and being saved. And then we will be saved when we stand before him at the last day. I wonder how many of you saw The Finest Hours with Casey Affleck. How many, I hope some people, how many people have seen the movie? This, this illustration is going to be a dud because you haven't seen the movie. Oh my goodness. All right, it's a great movie, all right? And I'm going to spoil it for you, okay? This is one of the greatest Coast Guard rescues. Are you serious? Nobody has seen Finest Hours? Come on. Oh, my goodness. All right, well, know your audience. So here's the deal. These guys are in this terrible storm. This is one of the greatest Coast Guard rescues to this day. It's a true story. And... Casey Affleck gets sent out in this Coast Guard uh, little vessel, and I don't know all the proper terms, but this thing is way too small to be going where he's going. And everybody tells him he's crazy, and he shouldn't be even going after these people to save him. But these sailors are out on this big ship, and the storm is so bad that their ship actually gets split into two. And half the ship is just gone and the other half is slowly filling up with water. And the only thing they can do is to rest the thing on a barge and just honk the horn and hope that somebody will come to them in this storm. And they're just blowing this huge horn, and that thing is slowly filling up, and they are stuck. And this Coast Guard cruiser goes out to find them at night with this little light, and I mean, it's just like a chance and... There's no GPS. There's none of that stuff. And he finds them. And when he finds them, these guys have to get, take a rope and they have to get down into this boat. And now this boat is way too many people on it than what it's made for. And now they've got to find their way back 
And they, you know, because of all the wind and the waves, they've lost their compass. They got nothing. And it's completely dark, and they got to make it back to land. And sure enough, of course, as Hollywood shows it, the people that they all take their headlights of their cars and they go to the dock and they shine a light out so that these people can actually see a light. I'm blowing the movie for you. but And so they, they come back in. Now my question is this. When were they saved? When were they saved? When were those sailors saved? Was it the moment that they saw the Coast Guard ship coming and knew that help was on its way? Were they saved then? That love had come, that love had shown such amazing risk to come to them? Was that when they were saved? Or were they saved when they climbed down on the rope and they had to jump down into the ship and they landed in the ship and they made, were they saved then? Or were they saved when they saw the headlights from the dock and they knew they were going to make it? Or were they saved when they took the last step out of that boat onto the dock, now we're saved? When were they saved? Well, the answer is all the above. And that's the way it is with us in salvation, is that you were saved at the cross, you're being saved now by the Holy Spirit, and you will be saved, and he will put your feet, and you will cross over into the promised land in Jesus. But for me, the moment I knew they were saved was the moment they saw those headlights and they knew that they were not completely lost and they were going to make it back. What about you this morning? Have you seen the light? What boat are you on? Are you on the Jesus boat or are you on the Titanic? And this is much worse than cold water of the Titanic. The Bible speaks of of perishing because it's eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Do you know him? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and receiving his salvation rather than trying to achieve it? You repent of your achieving and you receive Christ and put both hands and feet in your body and your life and you trust in him and you live for him and that's a new Copernican circle revolution. He's the center. Make him your all in all. He's our only hope, and he's good. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We want to know more of this cross. Increase our appetite, our heart's desire for you. And even today, I pray that we would not just leave here and then think, well, this is, this is great. Back to work. But Lord, may this change how we work and how we live and how we think that the cross affects everything. It affects our pride for we lay it all down at your feet. Lord, it was we that killed the Lord of glory. We thank you that you loved us and have forgiven us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.